Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The Dragon's Run is the 10th chapter of Ursula K. Le Guin's third Earthsea novel, The Farthest Shore. It's also a location that we're going to talk about in just a moment, looking at her vivid description of it. And as you can guess, it is where dragons live. Many, many dragons. As a matter of fact, this is the largest group concentration, whatever we want to call it, of dragons that we have in the Earthsea novels up to this point. We've encountered dragons prior to this in a story and in the first novel, but this is a lot more dragons. And the dragons, as it's going to turn out in this chapter, are in a bad way. So let's talk first about the geography of this place. So the Dragon's Run is an entire set of islands that are south and east of Selador, the place where the climax of the story is going to take place, or at least a gateway into the dry land where it will take place. And there's a really interesting description here. There was no man living who had sailed the dragon's run or seen it except the Ark Mage at that point. 20 years before and more, he had sailed the length of it from east to west and back again. It was a nightmare and a marvel to a sailor. The water was a maze of blue channels and green shoals. And among these by hand in word and most vigilant care, he and Aaron now pick their boats way between the rocks and reefs. Some of these lay low under or half under the wash of the waves covered with anemone and barnacle and ribbony sea fern like water monsters shelled or sinuous. Others stood up in cliff and pinnacle sheer from the sea and these were arches and half arches, carven towers, fantastic shapes of animals, boars, backs and serpents heads, all huge deformed, diffuse as if life writhed half conscious on the rock. The sea waves beat on them with a sound like breathing and they were wet with the bright bitter spray in one such rock from the south there was plainly visible the hunched shoulders and heavy noble head of a man stooped in pondering thought above the sea but when the boat had passed it looking back from the north all man was gone from it and the massive rocks revealed a cave in which the sea rose and fell making a hollow clapping thunder iron said is there a voice in the cave and ged says the sea's voice but it speaks a word sparrowhawk listened and he glanced at iron back of the cave how do you hear it as saying the sound am in the old speech that signifies the beginning or long ago, but I hear it as ob, which is a way of saying the end. So there's this very interesting place that they're in. And, you know, it's kind of a magical, fantastical place, just exactly the sort of thing where you would think to find dragons. And they see the dragons. The dragons come out to meet them. And this is something that Arn or Labanan has been yearning to see because of all the things that are said about dragons. Ged has seen them many times, right? He's not bored with them, but he's not as betaken with them as you can say. So there's this brilliant description here. As Lookfar approached the islands, Arin saw the dragons soaring and circling on the morning wind, and his heart leapt up with them with a joy a joy of fulfillment that was like pain. What a great description of the affectivity of seeing the sight of dragons flying. Le Guin has another thing that she says that she puts in Iron's mind at this point. All the glory of mortality was in that flight. All the glory of mortality was in that flight of the dragons. What a statement. 
Why is that the case? And here's where we get to something deeply philosophical, where metaphysics and morals and aesthetics intersect. It goes on. Their beauty was made up of terrible strength, utter wildness, and the grace of reason. So things that we wouldn't think to put together, wildness, reason, right? There's an explanation. For these were thinking creatures with speech and ancient wisdom. In the pattern of their flight, there was a fierce willed concord. So why is it so awesome to see the dragons? It's not just you're seeing these things flying around, which is beautiful by itself. If you've ever seen birds of prey flying or things along those lines, you might be able to relate to that or the grace of a great cat hunting or anything along those lines. This is something different. Their rationality, their fact of thinking, the connection between them and language is somehow manifest in this flight. Now, there's something that needs to be explored here, something that needs to be unpacked that Le Guin is not telling us here. Aristotle provides a good example of this in Politics Book 1, but there are many other philosophers, both in Greece and Rome and in other parts of the world, who have connected this or called to mind this interconnection between speech, language, and reasoning, the capacity to think, the capacity to respond in rational ways. Aristotle says that we are different than the other animals in that they do, in fact, communicate with each other in some ways. They make sounds, but they don't have logos. They don't have reason or speech. And it's because of that that we can have koinoniae, that is, sharings or a community. It's also because of that that we can use rhetoric. Back in the Wizard of Earthsea, we find out dragons can lie using the old speech, right? They can make things seem to be what they're not and vice versa. And we also can not just talk about, but perceive things that other animals can't. For example, the beautiful and the ugly, the or the noble and the fine, the, the just and the unjust. And Aristotle says all the other moral qualities, kaita Allah in Greek. Something like this is being gestured at by Le Guin here in, in Arin's response to the dragons. Notice that get is not explaining this. Arin grasps this as something central. Now, we also find out that the dragon's flight is disordered in certain respects. It, they are angered. And Ged goes on and says, they are angry. They dance their anger on the wind. Now we're in the hornet's nest. And Ged cries aloud to them a sort of greeting. And there are three different responses by the dragons. Some of them are like, oh, I get it. This guy's on our side. And they fly back off to the islands to leave him alone. So some of them wheeled in mid-flight, scattering and returned to the isles. Others halted and hovered, the sword-like claws of their forearms outstretched but checked. They're waiting to see what's going to happen. And then he says, one dropping low over the water flew slowly on towards them. In two wing strokes, it was over the boat. The mailed belly scarcely cleared the mast. Aaron saw the wrinkled armor and unarmored flesh between the inner shoulder joint and breast, which with the eye is the dragon's only vulnerable point. The smoke that roiled from the long-toothed mouth choked him. With it came a carrion stench that made him wince and retch. And they're actually being singed by it, both Ged and Arin. So this is like a buzzing attack, right? And they're wondering why. So Sparrowhawk says, that was an insolence, but I seek no quarrel with these creatures. They seem mad or bewildered. They did not speak. Never have I met a dragon who did not speak before it struck. If 
only to torment its prey. What is going on here? And we actually get the explanation from Orm Embar in just a bit. But before that, they run across an evil sight, they call it. Something bad. A dying dragon. A dragon who is not dying of disease or hunger or something like that. Instead, it's dying because of the wounds that have been inflicted on it by the other dragons says, one black wing was bent under it, the other stretched out vast across the sand and into the water, so that the come and go of waves moved it a little to and fro in a mockery of flight. The long snake body lay full length on the rock and sand. One foreleg was missing. The armor and flesh were torn from the great arch of the ribs, and the belly was torn open, so that the sand for yards was blackened with the poisoned dragon blood. Yet the creature still lived, so great a life is in dragons, that only an equal power of wizardry can kill them swiftly. The green gold eyes were open, and as the boat sailed by, the lean huge head moved a little, and with a rattling hiss, steam mixed with bloody spray shot from the nostrils. The beach between the dying dragon and the sea's edge was tracked and scored by the feet and heavy bodies of his kind, and his entrails were trodden into the sand. So other dragons did that to him. Why? So Sparrowhawk has a conjecture. He says, they've been driven mad. Their speech has been taken from them. Those who spoke before men spoke, who are older than any other living being, the children of Segoy, they have been driven to the dumb terror of the beasts. So this faculty, which for them is not just a language that they happen to learn the way people in Earthsea do, the language of the making has been taken from them. The true speech, the language of creation that they learned without even having to engage in any education whatsoever, if they're born into it, that has been taken from them. It would be as if you took something absolutely intimate and essential to all of us, away from us, that despair that they're in. Now, we find from Orm Embar, who at that point has not yet lost his own speech, what has taken place. Another dragon lord has come, one who may in fact be stronger than all of the dragons and Ged himself. And Ged reports to Arin what Orm Embar has said. This man has been among them, having no fear of them, for though he, though killed, he returns from death in his body alive. Therefore, they fear him as a creature outside nature. So this mage, this wizard, this dragon lord doesn't show fear to them. And he keeps coming back in a new body whenever they kill him. So the fear is reversed. And because they fear him, he has power over them. And what does he do with that power? He takes from them something that is most intimate and essential to them, their voices, their speech. They remain dragons. They still have their massive bodies. They still have the magic that they're created by. They still have incredible power, but they can't communicate with each other and they can't talk even to themselves. They are missing something and this has greatly disordered them. He says, he takes the speech of the making from them, leaving them prey to their own wild nature. So they devour one another or take their own lives, plunging into the sea, loathly death for the fire serpent, the beast of wind and fire. So this is a really significant problem. It's not just the human beings of 
the vast archipelago of Earthsea that are in a bad way, the magic failing, the luck failing, joy failing, disorder arising. It's now also the great race of the dragons as well, but not all of them. Orm Embar at this point still has his name. Ged asks, where are you, Kalesin, the oldest of all the dragons? As we're going to find out, Kalesin retains his speech as well. So all is not lost. But it's looking pretty bad at this point in the encounter with the dragons of the run. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.